Chris Shelton, and I am coming at you with another hour or two or three or five, or we'll see how this goes, probably not that long, of podcasting greatness. And as you can see, I am joined this week by my good friend, Jen Kiaba. Hello, Jen. Hello. How are you doing? Welcome to the show. Uh, So, Jen, as you guys uh, know from our earlier talks, and if you have not seen those, I highly recommend you look them up because Jen and I have had some great conversations, reason being that she is doing the same program I just finished up on, which is the Psychology of Course and Control program through Salford. And she is a second-generation member, survivor, escapee of the Unification Church, what we call the Moonies. So, Jen and I have been promising for some time to actually talk about her story because we get so involved in talking about the interesting and fascinating aspects of coercive control in our society and with second generation members and the ways you treat this. There's so many things to talk about. And we've never really dived into all the specifics or the chronology of her own story. And that's something I do on this channel. And I and I think that there's you know, uh, lessons to be learned and things to 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 see and know about uh, from our life lessons that we that we've gotten from this stuff. So, Jen, we get to we get to hear all about you this week. Oh boy! Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's funny because I remember saying on a previous podcast that my story is boring, <laughs> and I. I also have said that cults are boring, and I, I want to contextualize that with an apology to anybody who may have felt like I've trivialized their experience, their story. Um, I think that there's actually a lot to be learned from all of our stories. I just i am hoping that I'm in a place where it doesn't define and trigger me anymore, and I think for a long time, that t- triggered feeling around my story made it feel interesting. And so I just wanted to start with that because, uh, again, if if I uh, diminished anybody in in those previous uh, conversations, I want to acknowledge and atone for that Um, because I do know that for second-generation, multi-generation survivors, the process of of integrating, not even reintegrating, of integrating into society is so difficult because we are rebuilding an identity from scratch. And so um, I never never wanna trivialize that for somebody. Um, I think, like, like you were saying, because we're in this program together, I've been able to see the man behind the curtain a little more in my story. And, and I've been able to be like, oh, oh, okay, that's how that worked. It's, it's not like my story is super special. <laughs> it's that my story was templated on the cult playbook that you know so many uh, survivors have experienced. So with that sort of um, preface, uh, I, when I tell my story, I usually feel like I have to give some unification church history slash mythology because uh, most people our age are actually not familiar with the Unification Church. People who are a little bit older probably remember the Moonies. So to sort of begin, uh, the Unification Church 
in the in the cultic studies area is actually one of what's considered like the big three cults that uh, created a big scare in the United States in the 60s and 70s. So you had Unification Church, the Children of God, which is now the family or the family international, and then the Hare Krishna movement. Um, and then later Scientology came on the scene, even though it was started sort of around the same time. So then, you know, we all, all four of us sort of got together and scared, scared the, the Americans. But the Unification Church is a sort of Christian-based group that was started in South Korea in the early 1950s by Reverend Sung Young Moon. And his family was uh, located in the northern part of what is what is now North Korea, so in like the Pyongyang area. And so his early childhood was really defined by the Japanese occupation. And so there was a lot of communist control. Uh, he, I think he and his family were persecuted because they were Christians. And so during the Japanese occupation, I think that that was considered a minority religion. So he had to, he wasn't even allowed to speak his own language. Um, much less practice his his faith. And then he, as he grew older, he got involved in a lot of these sort of messianic movements in the Koreas. Um, a lot of them really believed that Jesus was going to return. In the church mythology, on his 15th or 16th birthday, depending on the lunar way of counting or, you know, Western way of counting. He was praying on a mountain and Jesus came to him and said, I failed in my mission. I wasn't supposed to be crucified. I was supposed to get married, have babies and have the, the holy lineage of God. And so you, Sun Myung Moon, need to, uh, you need to become the returning of Christ and, and take up my mission. And supposedly Moon was like, no, I can't do it. And Jesus asked again, he's like, no, I can't do it. And then, you know, like the third time, of course, he's like, okay, fine, Jesus. And he did all these battles in spirit world to discover the divine principle, which is the, you know, the Dianetics, if you will, of the Unification Church. Um, and it's, it's really this amalgamation of various, uh, various schools of thought. So it, it has some like Confucianist leanings in there. There's some Christianity, there's some pseudoscientific stuff in there. And, uh, supposedly Moon didn't even write it. Supposedly he stole it from somebody else or multiple people. Um, again, he was involved in a lot of messianic movements in Korea and, some of them allegedly were sex cults. Um, and so the Unification Church is supposedly rooted in this sexual practice of womb cleansing. The idea being, that, and then this is sort of like core Unification Church theology, and this will be relevant later, I promise. Um, the, the core theology is that Adam and Eve were, you know, two beings in the Garden of Eden who were supposed to grow to perfection. And the eating of the apple was not an actual apple. It was the misuse of sexual organs. So in Moon's teaching, uh, the archangel Lucifer had been God's right-hand man for millennia and, and got all of God's attention. But then suddenly Adam and Eve were created and Lucifer got jealous because even though he had the same amount of love and attention from God, it wasn't the amount that Adam and Eve had. And so that's like the first sort of separation from God. And then Lucifer 
I, I don't remember exactly what the justification mentally was for this, like whether he just wanted to like become his own God or somehow get closer to God through this, but he seduced Eve and he had a sexual spiritual relationship with Eve. And that was the fall of man that cut her off of the lineage of God. Blood lineage is super important in this religion. Mm. And Eve, so this is also the eating, this is the eating of the apple, the eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. And so once Eve has had this sexual relationship with the archangel, she realizes, oh, Adam was supposed to be my husband. Now, a kind of creepy aside is that Moon has said that Eve was 16 at the time. So you have this like ageless being seducing an underage girl. I'm giggling. It's not funny. It's actually like super fucked up, but it's also just like so bizarre too. Um, So she realizes that she was supposed to marry Adam and have this true family based on God. So She thinks that the way to restore this is to sleep with Adam. So they have a sexual relationship. And that is uh, what cuts them off from God. So God comes to them and says, what have you done? And instead of Adam taking responsibility and saying, you know, I'm sorry, God, we did this. uh, He blames Eve and then she blames the serpent. And so God loses his ability to restore his children. Like in in the Unification Church theology, it's like this cosmic chess game between Lucifer, now Satan, and God. And they're always sort of like playing these little pieces against each other. But the root of all evil is that Satan won by seducing God's children away from them. And so all of human history has been based on the blood lineage of Satan. So wow yeah yeah i gotta say i mean i say wow a lot but wow that's interesting i did not know any of that i I, i've never done a deep dive on on the unification church so i know what steve hassan has discussed about it i know about its recruitment methods and its Mm -hmm. retention techniques but the theology has not been something I've dived into. And this is absolutely fascinating because you see so many of the justifications for all those recruitment and retention techniques I know about. I'm like, oh, that's mm-hmm. what's going on there. Yeah. 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 So uh, so getting back to sort of the historical part of this yeah. is that, um, again, I don't know if Moon got this belief system Um from himself or from, you know, meditation and inspiration or battles in the spirit world, or if he, again, amalgamated them from these various messianic groups that he was involved in. Um, But that belief system evolved into this practice called called womb cleansing. Um, And the Korean word, I always give this sort of alert, I'm going to butcher the Korean pronunciation of it, um, is pigurun. So what would happen is that in the churches, Uh, because again, I think there were plural of them that practiced this, the person who was the leader was in the position of God, and they would have sex with followers of the opposite sex. Um, So sort of acting as this priest or priestess, they would engage in this womb cleansing, and then the followers would go and have sex with each other. And that would be sort of the process of restoration. 
I believe that early Mormonism had a sort of similar way of, of operating. So what's interesting is that Moon got thrown in prison multiple times for this. And by the time he brought this over to the United States, this was not something that was discussed. It's more of like this hush-hush thing of like, did it happen? Did it not happen? So older members... Mm maybe experienced it there's there's a hierarchy in the church so there's moon and his much younger wife uh moon had multiple wives by the way but he was supposed to you know restore his eve so that he as the the third adam there's adam there's jesus as second adam and then moon as third adam so moon as the third adam was supposed to restore his eve and have children um, who were then going to be the first people born of God's true lineage. And then the members are engrafted onto his lineage through various ceremonies that originally were probably this womb cleansing ceremony, but then evolved once the church started spreading and people realized that um, in conservative America, sex orgies probably weren't going to fly. Um, and I, I like I always sort of have this caveat of like if you're up front and and your religion practices this and you say this is why we do it and you have fully informed consent, go for it. But in a coercive context, I have a real problem with it. And in the context of lying to people about it, I have a problem with it. So that's how the church was formed. And so when my parents joined, I don't think they had any idea about this history. My parents joined in the early 70s, my mother on the, the West Coast in Arizona, and then my father in New York. And one of the reasons why the Unification Church became such a problematic group, especially in the 70s, was the recruitment models that you're referring to. Um, and so, in fact, I think I remember reading, was it a paper by Steve Kent? And Steve Kent and colleagues, where it talked about um, Boonville, which was this uh, property that the Unification Church owned in California, um, where they would, it's this isolated farm compound where they would bring people for these long lectures, isolate them, manipulate them. The Boonville model was uh, a basis for the uh, concern about brainwashing in the cult studies context. I think one of the reasons why it was so potent is because again, Moon, he grew up under the communist occupation and he was thrown into prison in North Korea. So he experienced the thought reform that like American POWs probably faced in like the Chinese prison camps and um, the, the Korean War POWs experienced. And I think, and many of us think, that Moon took what was done to him and used it in, in an evangelical context to recruit people. Mm -hmm. So the way my, <laughs> I, I don't actually know my father's um, conversion story. From my understanding, my mother's conversion story is that, you know, she met people on campus. It was probably one of the front groups um, and they invited her most likely to a dinner. 
And, and what would happen at these dinners is that you'd basically get handlers. You'd have like one or two people who were like on you all the time, making sure that you were not interacting with another potential recruit. So all of the information is being filtered through an established member. And you would be subjected to a lecture, which would be kind of like really new agey, esoteric stuff with divine principles sort of threaded in there. Um, and it would be like, so exciting. You know, we're living in this new era. And uh, if you come to our weekend at our farm, you get to hear more. But it's a limited time offer. And if you don't accept us tonight and get in the van and go two hours north into the isolated desert or whatever, like you may never have this opportunity again. Yep. Um, and so what would happen is that the people who were, who, who said yes, were taken again in a van up to this isolated farm. Um, and, and I'm specifically talking about like the Oakland, California model, but I think that this was reproduced in other areas. So my mother may have experienced something similar, but they'd be taken to Boonville where they'd have a weekend workshop and they'd be given no time to themselves. The handlers would literally follow them to the bathroom. They weren't allowed to ask questions. They weren't allowed to interact with other potential recruits. They were kept up really late, woken up early, and the activity was nonstop. Plus, they would have these like sharing sessions where it was kind of like forced confession where you'd have to share like really intimate details about yourself. And if you didn't, share enough, you were like shamed in front of the group. And then after recruits went to sleep, all of the members would start sharing information about like, oh, here's where this person is vulnerable. Now it sounds super nefarious when we talk about it this way, but from the perspective of those people who had already been indoctrinated, they sincerely believed that Moon was the Messiah and that they were saving people from being part of Satan's lineage. You know, they were the first people in 6,000 biblical years who had had this, or what would have been, yeah, 6,000 biblical years who uh, were of God's lineage, you know, or, or were going to be a part of it. And so from that perspective, it justified everything that they did. Um, and so... If I if I might interject really quickly here, Please. just to just to reinforce what you're saying, and having just you know written and talked about this so much, I mean every point of Lifton's model of thought reform has been reflected in the things you have talked about already, from right. confession culture to you know the us versus them to the mm -hmm. um, you know Will the you sacred control? truth, sacred science, you know yeah, yeah. exactly right, like all these yeah. points of. Yeah, milieu control, like they have to isolate you, have total control mm -hmm. of the, the place where you are, and, um, you know, and mystical manipulation, right, through trance and through the, the, the dancing and the getting up and the sleep and the food and all the other. I mean, it's really, really, really quite a totalist disguised thing. And um, mm -hmm. I just wanted to comment on that real fast for, for anybody who's, you know, trying to connect these dots. They're all there. It's all in there. <laughs> Yeah, again, and I'd have to go back to find the article that it was either on like the spiritual abuse resources website or 
the core ICSA website um, that talked about how this Boonville model really gave birth to um, the, the brainwashing model being used in cult awareness studies and things like that, and then it being applied to some of these other groups. Yeah. Um, so that's that method of recruitment stopped before I was born, but those things still sort of followed um, in my childhood. And I will, I will get to that, but, um, oh, so with my mother's particular recruitment, um, if you stayed for the weekend, you were encouraged to stay for a week. If you stayed for a week, you were encouraged to stay for 21 days. And usually what would happen was they wouldn't tell you that this was associated with the Unification Church, that this was associated with Reverend Moon, they'd start dropping in little hints. And the way that this culminated is in the Parallels of History lecture, where they're taking, um, again, this sort of pseudoscientific model to say like, okay, here's biblical history, and here's the chess game that God and Satan were playing, and here's when this person was born, and here's when this providential figure was born. And we know, based on this Bible quote, that the second coming of the Messiah has to come from this place and has to be born around this time for this to fit these parallels, which people have actually disproven that like this is not even mathematically correct, stuff is being pulled out of context, etc. Um, but what that would do is that would lead people to be like, wait, are they talking about Reverend Moon, you know, and so if you went to a member and you didn't know they were a member of the church at the time, you'd just be like, is, is Reverend Moon the Messiah? They'd be like, you need to go pray about that. That, that might be a really important spiritual revelation for you. And so, um, you know, cause they talk about Moon as being like a great man and here's all the things that he's accomplished. So they'd slowly introduce you to the idea of Moon. Um, so what would happen is that it becomes this much more powerful conversion when you feel like you've discovered this truth versus somebody else telling you. And, um, and so this is something that I'll go back to when I start talking about second generation, because we didn't experience that they would try to create those sorts of circumstances for us because we grew up hearing that moon was the messiah so we didn't have the psychological breakdown is really what it ended up being um to have that moment where we were like oh wait is moon the messiah because what is happening throughout like these these various workshops is that people are being broken down psychologically and um i always reference the book Moonwebs by josh freed because he talked to Dr. Margaret Singer and others about the Boonville model and what is happening. And they compare it to like what happened to, to POWs in North Korea, for example. And it was, it was fascinating for me to realize like, oh, my parents weren't stupid. My parents were highly abused and, and highly manipulated into a situation that completely broke down their sense of self. And so what would happen is once somebody had that breakthrough, they would be sent out on something called mobile fundraising team. And that was sort of like, your personality is jelly at this point. And it's this stasis that they could hold you in where you would live in a van and you would fundraise up to 20 hours a day. And 
as you're in that stasis, your new moony personality begins to calcify. And so it was really in this era that, you know, the Ted Patricks are seeing what's going on with the children of God and other parents are seeing what's going on with their own children where um, they're like, they see their children and they're like glass-eyed zombies. It's because this method has broken them down. And so it was always really interesting for me to see what I assumed were like pieces of my mother's old personality coming out because she had the raunchiest sense of humor. And I'd be like, what is this? But at the same time, she'd call herself a fundamentalist Mooney. And if I ever like responded with that level of humor, she'd be horrified, you know? And so it is, um, I think it was called snapping where you would like go from one personality to another. Mm-hmm. So even though there is that sort of like calcified cult identity, um, there was the potential for the old identity to reemerge. And the longer that that old identity is not engaged with, the more that it atrophies, right? So that's how you get people who are willing to have Reverend Moon choose their spouse for them. And so this is what the Moonies are the most famous for, are the mass weddings. So my parents didn't really know each other before they were married, but in 1979, Moon called, I guess, everybody who had been in the church for like X number of years, who had recruited X number of spiritual children into the church to be a part of a matching ceremony. And so in the Unification Church, there's no sex. There's no relationships with the opposite gender. You are like completely a monk until you get married. And this is, again, the engrafting you onto the true, what Moon called the true olive tree or the, you know, God's lineage. So even though these people were members, they were still of Satan until they were able to go through being matched by Reverend Moon and then going through the blessing, which are those mass wedding ceremonies. Mm. So in 1979, my parents, I think... I don't know how they must have only qualified because they needed more people. I don't know that either of my parents had enough spiritual children to, uh, to qualify for this, but um, Moon gathered all of the members that passed this threshold into the ballroom of the New Yorker hotel, which the church still owns. He'd have men on one side, women on the other, and he'd start pointing. And that's how you were engaged in the Unification Church up until very recently. And uh, you supposedly had a choice about whether or not you wanted to say yes or no. But the thing is, do you really have a choice when you believe this is the Messiah? And he is telling you that he can see seven generations into the future and seven generations into your ancestry and like knows all tells all for a price etc he's telling you this is your perfect match and it's not about your happiness it is not about your earthly fulfillment it may not even be for your kids happiness but again seven generations down the line somebody might be born that might be amazing for god how do you say no to that so for the most part people would get pointed to, they'd stand up, they'd bow to each other, they'd bow to Moon, they'd leave the ballroom and have a quick conversation, be like, do you? Okay, I guess so, me too. And then they would accept. And uh, 
that's how my parents met. <laughs> and uh, neither of them wanted to be matched to each other. They both had different ideas of what they wanted. Um, the church is incredibly racist. So um, the hierarchy as I experienced it was that Koreans were at the top and then um, white people were like, Moon hated Americans. He hated American women. He just was like trashing Westerners all the time. Hmm. So uh, my experience of the hierarchy was that even the Japanese were above Westerners, but then I've spoken to Japanese who are like, no, 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 no. Moon hated the Japanese because the Japanese occupied Korea during his childhood. And there's, um, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff to back that up where like, you know, there's a sense of tithing in the Unification Church, but then there's like an extra penalty that you have to pay if you're Japanese. And there's um, there's something that I'll, I'll get into later, I guess, which is sort of like the selling of indulgences, essentially, mm. uh, but the church version. And it's more expensive to be a Japanese than to be a Westerner. So you have this sort of like xenophobia and just hatred that Moon spewed on everybody. Uh, and then... <laughs> And then if you were like a person of color, not Japanese or Korean, I just, I felt like my experience was like they were never in leadership positions. And so they were at like the bottom rung of Moon's hierarchy. So both of my parents wanted to be matched to somebody that wasn't a Westerner. They both felt that it was like a punishment to them to get not just a Westerner, but an American um, because part of moon's belief and this is one of the ways that the unification church like promotes itself is that international interreligious interracial marriage is a way to bring peace and so the fact that like my mother got married to a, a jewish boy from brooklyn she was like how am i contributing to peace I, I really wanted to be matched to like a japanese or a korean or something and my father the same thing and there's this really gross side of it too, where um, they really feel like a lot of white men in the church wanted Asian wives because of the perception of dominance that the men had culturally. So that's a gross aside. But anyway, so those are the auspicious roots of my parents' marriage. Wow. They were, yeah. Damn. Yeah. And they, were and they made it work. Mm -hmm. Did they? Did they? Um did they? Mm. Yeah. So divorce is really not condoned in the Unification Church. Um, basically, so they were married in Madison Square Garden in 1982, which is the, the mass wedding that most people remember the Moonies by. Uh, my dad had chicken pox that day and my mom thought it was a sign, but she still went ahead with the marriage. And um, so it's called the blessing. And the blessing is considered to be eternal. So if you're married to somebody outside of the church, my mother told me, and I, I haven't read anything that's like specifically underlines this or underscores it, but my mother told me that, you know, you and, and your spouse, if you die, you won't be able to find each other in spirit world. It's only by being blessed that you'll be able to find each other. So what that meant is like divorce for any reason was just not okay. If you lost your spouse to death or something, then you could have what was called a comfort blessing. But it didn't mean that this was going to be your spouse in spirit world. And so unfortunately, uh, this, as I'm, I'm sure you can extrapolate to, uh, this created a, a huge dynamic for abuse in these relationships. 
an example being, um, I know of a family where the wife was beaten so badly, like her husband broke her arm with a two by four. She had to go to the hospital multiple times because of his beatings. And yet she didn't leave him. Nice. Because not only are the, there the, the, the coercive control dynamics that you and I've learned about in school in intimate partner violence, but then you've got the coercive context of a cult around you too. Yeah. And so... Talk about bounded choices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Know? Like, it's just not an option. And mm-hmm. so all those frustrations and emotional needs that aren't being met and problems these people are experiencing with each other... And the, and the cognitive dissonance of trying to sort that out with this being a divine thing that Moon himself is blessed mm-hmm. would just, it would be, again, the double binds, right? The like catch-22s you get caught in. This, yep. is, this is Bateson's work and this is psychosis defined. This is where it comes from. And I believe, I, I follow that work. I think that's valid work. I think that these double binds are what make us crazy. Mm-hmm. And and you're describing the the exact dimensions of those prisons that create yep. that level of cognitive dissonance and double bind. Right. So, so to your point of my parents made it work. My mother tried to leave my father multiple times. Mm-hmm. She would never have put it that way. She's also since passed. Um, oh. But she. She, both of my parents dropped out of college, like many Unification Church uh, first generation members when they joined. So um, she decided that she, <laughs> my mother is a really interesting person in that, um, again, like there was the the raunchy rebel side of her and then the fundamentalist Mooney side of her. Um, so the rebel side of her decided that she was going to create her own mission. So there's these hierarchies in the church where you have, they used to call them center man, which was basically your boss in the church. And now it's called central figure or since I've left, it might be something new, but it was central figure when I was, um, growing up. And this was the person through which all information flowed. So, you know, in a, in a pyramid, which the church was moon was at the top and then you'd have the korean leaders and then you know the japanese and american leaders and then you'd have um various continental and state leaders and then you'd have like central figures for uh the communal living spaces because a lot of the early church members lived in what were called centers and so it would be like a house with either people sleeping on the floor or sleeping in like barracks style rooms in these houses, some of which were like beautiful mansions and others were like little race ranch houses. So my mom decided that instead of following her central figure, she was going to create her own mission. And I think this came after like her Japanese central figure tried to seduce her kind of stuff. Like she experienced things where she's like, this isn't right, but she didn't leave. She's just like, maybe I can carve out my own thing here. So she decided she was going to finish school. She was going to study Spanish because at the time the unification church had this front group called CAUSA. And I forget what it stands for, but essentially they were involved with, I think it was the Reagan administration uh, dealing with like the, you know, the whole Contra scandal, like the Moonies were involved in that. They were helping bring money down to uh, Nicaragua and things like that. You're kidding. 
I'm not kidding. Of no, course not, if of you course. if you research it, it's fascinating. So uh, I think both of my parents were working for this organization at the time, traveling around the world. Because my mother was born in Mexico, she had uh, you know it wasn't her first language because she was born to American expats, but she had a handle on the language. So she decided because of the mission of CAUSA, she could go back to school, study Spanish, and use that for the church. But she decided that she was going to go to the University of Hawaii because she said it was the furthest she could get away from my father. So she, uh, she finished her degree and then quickly got pregnant with me. And uh, she was, I think, like around the time that she had gotten pregnant, she was living in the New Yorker Hotel, which was called the World Mission Headquarters. Maybe my parents were living together. They might have been living with other CAUSA members. Um, she had told me this story of like a squirrel falling through the ceiling. So that gives you this idea of like, they were obviously living in really nice quarters. Um, oh, clearly. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> nothing but the best. Yeah, no, nothing but the, be but the best for the, for the Moonies. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, unfortunately, that's par for the course in a lot of these groups where the leaders live in absolute opulence and um, and the, the members live in absolute squalor. The members had to give up not just, you know, careers and degrees, but they were supposed to donate everything that they had to the group. So if they owned a car, they donated that. If they had savings, they donated that. They donated properties, just the whole, the whole nine. So anyway, at the time that she got pregnant, I think they were living in the New Yorker Hotel, which was so, it was basically like a derelict building when the Moonies bought it. And I don't think that they did any renovation to it for a while. And um, like to the point where somebody supposedly died falling down an elevator shaft kind of a thing. So like absolute squalor for these people. Um, and eventually my, my mother decided that she didn't want to live in communal quarters. So she found an apartment in Forest Hills, Queens, was like a basement apartment, which again, it was like, when I think about it, I'm like, that was such a rebellious move on her part because she would have been encouraged to A, stay in communal quarters, and then B, like she did drop me off at a Mooney daycare for a long time in the New Yorker hotel. Um, but she would have been encouraged to then leave me there full time. So Moon decreed that at 100 days old, uh, parents had to basically abandon their children. Um, they had to go out on missions and they were going to leave their children in these nursery settings. They were essentially orphanages. Children died. Um, Markowitz and Halpern wrote in 1984 about the extreme neglect that Mooney children uh, were, were showing to the point where pediatricians in the New York hospital system reached out to one of those authors to be like, how do we help these children? They're showing signs of depression. They're showing signs of dissociation. Um, and the mothers don't actually know their children's medical histories. How do we educate these parents and how do we help them? Um, and nothing, I think, was ever done. No, I mean, what? Well, and that's the problem. It's the same. You're describing what it, what happened with the C organization as well. 
We had the mm -hmm. same thing in Scientology. We had an entire generation of Sea Org kids raised, but not by their parents, hardly ever seeing their parents, maybe an hour or two a week mm -hmm. that they would yep. have they would be exposed to their parents, right? And this is in the yep. 70s and 80s, especially through yep. the 80s and 90s is when this was was really going to town. And uh, these kids routinely, if they, they either recycled back into the Sea Org themselves, became Sea Org members and and... That was the, the 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 point was to raise cadets in the sure. cadet organization. That's what it was called, and so these kids were segregated off. They were being treated. They were they, it was squalor. There were cockroaches. There was you know vomit everywhere. There was you know food was was second rate, um, and the people assigned to be the nannies were uh, those who could be spared, which yes. meant you know. Yeah. Yes, that's that's something that I actually wrote about in my research proposal. That was something that was cited in several books um, that it was it was not uh, considered to be a good job if you were assigned to this as a first generation. So what's interesting is that this happened in Scientology. The Hare Krishna did this. I believe that the Children of God also separated their children. And I think that um, the, the Rajneesh group also, like they discouraged people from having children, but children were raised separately Yep, and because they were a distraction. That's, it, that's the point is they were a distraction. And um, uh, TM, uh, also transcendental meditation really? at the highest levels, really? you will find parental abandonment of their children mm -hmm. because they're off hopping about doing mm -hmm. their meditation, trying to yep. levitate all day to, to create world peace. And so they'll neglect their own families to do it. I've mm -hmm. I had numerous reports of this. So this is yeah. so this is a common. This is this is again one of these uh, things that cults do, and um, mm -hmm. it's incredibly destructive. Cult leaders. It's it's surprising how how little time or attention cult leaders have for the kids. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. the, and it shows uh, in a way because this is a cross platform phenomenon. It shows the limited. You know what the the disparity between this the mythology they present the 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 belief set they present that they are offering this infinite spiritual immortality and and we're thinking of the future and we're doing all this work to save the planet and you're part of this big movement that's going to help everybody one for one they talk the big game but they can't even deal with their own children the membership's yeah. own children are a distraction and annoyance and they wish they weren't around because they just distract from the short-term mission that the cult leader is actually on and it's yeah. funny not in a haha -ha way um that you know that's not that's not how it's presented um what what's happening is that the cult leader is breaking nuclear bonds, right? So that everybody is attached to the cult leader and not to each other. It's a great way to control people. Mm -hmm. um, what Moon talked about was that, you know, I mean, so first of all, Moon was not a model parent. He neglected his own children horrifically. Yeah. Um, and they've all, not all of them, most of them have gone on to become pretty monstrous. Um, but so he modeled this this horrible sort of way of parenting um, what he called the true children. His children, you know, were supposed to be this direct lineage of God, these princesses and princes. And then, um, you know, he said that 
the blessed children, which is where these children that were born of these blessings um, who had been engrafted onto the the true olive tree, um, that we would be taken care of better in these nursery settings than our own parents could do. Um, and, you know, there've been a number of studies that are very similar where it's like the, the parents, I think Alexandra Stein actually wrote a paper about mothers and cults. And so she did um, this analysis of various stories of these mothers, herself included, who were basically encouraged to give up their children. And a lot of them were guilted into it and then also told that the children would be better cared for, right. you know. And, oh, and that same, they were in the selfish. same in the yeah. Sea Org, right? It was, you know, the, the seniors in the in the command hierarchy of the Sea Org treated the kids as second-class citizens. It was a distraction. But the mm-hmm. parents were very much sold on the idea that this is a whole little subunit. We've mm-hmm. got policy. Hubbard has things to do. We're gonna we're gonna give them an education. We're gonna give them a better yeah. education than they'd ever get yes. in schools. Yep. Oh yeah, absolutely. You have to break those parental bonds and that's, and that's mm-hmm. how you do it. You know? Yep. Yep. Exactly. So uh, my mother would take me, she would commute from Queens to near her hotel and she would take me to the nursery there. So I was again, kind of a lucky kid in that I wasn't fully abandoned <laughs> um, the way that many, many people that I know and know of were um, to the point where like some were left for by like seven years and kids didn't recognize their parents. Some, again, there are reports that kids died in these nursery settings. My mother even told me of one girl who was like so neglected that, you know, her development was severely um behind like she didn't learn to roll over and things like that because there was just like no tactile involvement um so my mother one day she comes from work to the nursery to pick me up and she's it's it's a room full of children no adults anywhere and I'm in a soiled diaper bawling my eyes out it's clear that it's been like this for a while and uh, I've since heard from another second gen that um he spoke to somebody whose sister died in this particular nursery situation. Again, this is like daycare, you know, kid died in daycare from neglect, not just, you know, orphanage setting. But my mom was so horrified by these circumstances that she decided to never bring me back and decided that she could never leave me in one of those nurseries and go on a mission. So I think that sort of the very next part of this narrative is that she ran away. And she went to her parents out in Phoenix. And I lived with them, with her, for several months. Um, until, so she was running away from my father. She was running away from the church. She was pregnant with my sister at the time, too. So I was like nine months old at the most. And somehow, something must have happened where... My grandparents were probably trying to be like, if you divorce this man, if you leave the cult, we will help you. We will get you a house. We will get you employment kind of things. Um, And none, I, I never heard what actually went down. But at some point, my mother decided to move out of their house and move into a center with me in Tempe, Arizona. So a center is, again, a communal space. And the weird thing about that choice is like, in order to have done that, she would have had to 
basically abandoned me again because you you don't just get to like live there and raise your kid. You're either like cooking and cleaning full-time or you're out fundraising full-time or something. So I've looked at that as this like, what happened kind of moment where, um, you know, you see the, I want to say like the true self of my mother kind of coming through being like, I have to protect my child and this other child on the way because this organization, the structure around me could literally kill them or neglect them. But the training at that point, she was in the church 10 years. So that training was so entrenched that if my grandparents perhaps said the wrong thing or the church found out where she was and was able to like hook her, she went right back. Um, and so I, I bring this up because like, we're not even into my story yet. Right. And I've been talking for how long, but I bring this up to illustrate that the dynamics again are so similar to intimate partner violence where somebody can try to leave over and over again and they can see this isn't okay but maybe they don't see the full picture, right? Or they're taught to doubt their own experience of reality. And so they're able to get pulled back in over and over again. If, if, so, I, if I might also at ahead. this point, right? Because we're talking here about retention and recovery. And this is something that I worked uh, a lot on as a Scientologist in the Sea Org and stuff. And you know, recovering people literally going knocking on their doors and getting them back in. And- yep. oh, yeah. um, yeah, so I did, I did a lot of that work, and and it wasn't particularly hard to do if you had somebody who really had been a true believer, because what all you had to, all you got to do is resuscitate their mm-hmm. purpose for having been involved in the first place, right? Because mm-hmm. they 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 had reasons for wanting to do what they did. It, nobody joins a cult for no good reason or because they're bored. You know, you right. you join these groups because you got you're convinced that they're going to do something for you, and. And you stick around and stay on because you think that that change is happening or is right around the corner. It's just about to happen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I'm suspecting here that while we don't know the specifics of this, the other side of this and the thing that you mentioned um, specifically that I'll comment on is if your grandparents, if her mom and dad were putting a condition on their help, if you Mm -hmm. do this, if you do Mm -hmm. that. Out of love and maybe yeah. even out of a spirit of tough love, which was a little bit more acceptable at that time and place in America, then that was the, you know, common wisdom of how you deal with this kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. hey, at least we didn't get her deprogrammed, you know, kind of thing. It was like that was that would have been a what would have been considered at that time a, one of the viable options available to them. So so they yeah. thought they were probably being reasonable, but it really with 10 years in. You, you know, we can appreciate the landmines that are placed in a person's mind yeah. by these indoctrination systems. And they're, and these are carefully crafted things. Moon knew what he was doing. And so, so any number of scenarios are possible, but I think we can speak, uh, you know, pretty accurately to all it took was run wrong word or run wrong thing or no, you have to from them to send her right back into, see, see, look what they do. Look how they try to mess with you. Look how they, Mm -hmm. you know, et cetera. cetera. And, and the, the conditioning 
that she had undergone up until that point. Like, so she had brought her parents, she had brought her brother, she had brought a friend to various workshops. So she had tried to recruit her family and her loved ones into the church and was not successful. Mm -hmm. And so like many organizations, both religious, political, and business, um, if you are unsuccessful in recruiting somebody, they become an enemy. So in this sense, my grandparents had learned the truth, right? But had rejected the Messiah and therefore were of Satan. And so even if they didn't say the wrong thing, even if they had said, can we give you breakfast in bed, right? And my mother was like getting too comfortable or something because you have to understand that the life of a church member was so austere that, you know, they were malnourished, they were not enough sleep, like no real time for reflection. Um, While some people, when they were away from that milieu, were able to recover parts of themselves. And and Dr. Uh, Hassan is a perfect example of that. Like he was able to kind of come back to his old self. I think when he was in the hospital after an accident. uh, And a family family intervention to help him along with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it, it could be that they may not have even said the wrong thing that uh, my mother felt guilt, for example, about just like how comfortable she was or something. Any one of those things could have been a landmine, as you're saying, to trigger her um, back into the church context. Um, Additionally, my father came out to Phoenix for a CAUSA conference. And so I I think, again, I never got clear on the timeline. I think that she had already been living at uh, the Tempe Center at the time. But my dad decided to stay, so he he followed her out, and they got an apartment together. My sister was born, and my dad supported us by selling flowers on a street corner. And so that is the level of professional qualifications that Unification Church members had at the time. There are photos of me as a baby visiting my father on the street corner where he had like a rose stand. And there are some members who still support themselves that way. Others have developed various professional credentials to support various fronts of the Unification Church or various missions. And my father is one of them. But at the time, with a child and another one on the way, that's how he was keeping a roof over our heads. And like, there's something about that that like really breaks my heart, you know, that like, man, uh, that, 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 that the potential of so many people was reduced down to something like that. Um, so anyway, (laughs) I think at that point, my mother must've been like, yeah, this isn't sustainable. Um, my father also happened to be the former assistant to Dr. Bohi Pak, who was Moon's right-hand man. And so growing up, I basically thought my dad was like the third most important man in the world. It was Moon, Dr. Pak, and my dad. And that was that was math, you know? Um, but I think that my mom looked at it and was like, all right, my husband's selling flowers. He went from this very high position in the church to this very humble one. 
Uh, he hadn't finished his degree at the time she had. And because she was now a mother and choosing against, I don't know what, what kind of pressure to not abandon her children to a mission. Um, she was like, flowers aren't going to cut it. So she encouraged my dad to go back to school. So he got his undergrad all the way through his PhD in the Unification Church, which makes him an incredible rarity, I think. Um, Moon did establish various tracks for like seminarians to get their PhD, but my father became an expert in North Korea international relations because Moon felt like, I think, I think Korea is considered the Adam nation in the big chess game. And then there's like the Eve nation is is Japan and then the United States is the Archangel Nation. And I'm not really sure how that works in the chess game, but it's important. So Moon thought that the reunification of North and South Korea was really important. And so that's sort of the political science trajectory that my dad took. And what that meant was that unlike many people, uh, I actually grew up outside of a unification church milieu which meant that I had like one foot in the church and one foot out. So up until the time that I was 12, um, we, we didn't live in the center. Uh, we lived pretty far from the, the closest church members and I saw church members on Sundays. So I went to a public school, but I was a blessed child. So I wasn't allowed to tell anybody that I was a Mooney because my parents their youth experience in the church was fear of being kidnapped by deprogrammers. So that was the boogeyman that I grew up with thinking that if I tell my teachers, for example, that uh, I'm a Mooney, then I'm going to get either kidnapped by a deprogrammer or like the state would come in and take me away. Those were two big fears that my parents had. Um, I don't, I don't think that Either of my grandparents, sets of grandparents, tried to deprogram my parents. But I I know on both sides, there was like resentment that their children joined the church. So I think that that even instilled fear. Um, Plus, I, that I, can, I can certainly just chime in real fast. Growing up in the 80s and being in high school and, and college age during that time, that decade, um, it, it was a thing. It was reported Absolutely. on in the news. It was talked about. There were newspaper articles. There was Newsweek articles about it. Deprogramming was a topic that people discussed mm -hmm. from time to time. It would come up. Mm -hmm. And so, and it was always controversial, always kind of bad and kidnapping people and throwing them in a van. I think there were TV movies even or or faux documentaries or something put together on this. And it was a, it was a controversial thing back then. So I could see why Scientologists, Moonies, Hare Krishnas would be like getting told by their leaders, Hey, you got to watch out for, you know, unmarked vans and coming up on you and that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I've, I've read a number of first generation testimonies slash, um, well, apostate stories so um <laughs> their memoirs and things like that and of those that were deprogrammed it does sound like a really harrowing experience um i believe i have read that uh unification church members were taught to harm themselves enough to be taken to the hospital so ford green who was um he's a lawyer now but he was a deprogrammer back in the day 
he got involved because he he went in to extract his sister, uh, ended up getting converted, leaving, and then becoming a deprogrammer and uh, was very successful, but was not allowed, able to get his sister out. So in, I think in her testimony about this, she actually uh, stabbed herself. She broke a bottle and stabbed herself as per protocol to go to the hospital so that she could get away. Um, the Moonies also uh, inculcated fear of, of rape, for example, in, in deprogramming situations. I've never heard of it actually happening. Did it? I don't know. Um, Ford Green, I think it's Ford Green is depicted in the movie Ticket to Heaven and is written about in Moonwebs, which is the book that Ticket to Heaven is based on. And his methods in deprogramming sound terrifying. Like they sound like psychological abuse, you know, well, and they were. to some, yeah, yeah. They were. <laughs> I mean, you know, basically it's like they're using Lifton's criteria or like the, the Biderman criteria, right. For, for coercion, uh, for what they believe is a good purpose, but they, they were actively harming people just as the cults were. So yeah. I grew up afraid of deprogrammers and uh, what, what was also sort of problematic too, though, was that um, because I grew up outside of these insular communities, I didn't really fit in either. So like other second generation didn't really want to talk to me. So I was afraid to go to Sunday school because I was an outsider. But then I was also an outsider at school too. My parents didn't really want me to have friends. So it was a very isolated experience growing up. And I remember we would go to church on Sundays um, when we lived in Northern Virginia. And then when my father started his PhD, we moved down to Charlottesville so that he could attend the University of Virginia. And so we were about two hours away from the DC church. We would only go to church on the holy days. Sorry and about holy that. days were like, no, you're fine. Mm -hmm. Going to church Got on it? holy days? <laughs> Sorry. Holy days. Turning the volume So holy down. days were these made up days, like true parents day and true children's day and true day of all things and, and stuff like that. Like everything was holy in the church context. Like really moons, moon really wanted to take over the world. Like he wanted to be the head of a theocracy. Um, so, you know, he wanted to manufacture everything, but we couldn't, we didn't have the resources to manufacture everything. So for example, groceries, you know, you were bringing something in from the satanic world. So you would holy salt them in order to like remove Satan. I mean, like the level of ritual is intense. Um, every Sunday you would get up at, before five, you would go into the prayer room, which was the dedicated room in your house, and you would bow to a picture of moon um, and then recite in English and Korean the pledge, which is basically you pledging your life spiritually and physically to be a soldier for God and for moon. So like, I, I knew this pledge by heart at three. You know, I was saying to God and true parents, which is what we were supposed to call them, true mother and true father, right? Because it's always the, the, uh, replace the, the, the bonds of the nuclear family with the cult. Um, 
I was pledging to Moon that I will, you know, charge into the enemy camp and judge them with the weapons that God has been judging them for 6,000 years. I will fight with my life. This I pledge and swear. Um, and I think when I was 10, the rhetoric became slightly less militaristic, but again, it was this ideology of you're going to take over the whole world. So, you know, Moon has manufactured weapons. He, um, the Unification Church has a, a pretty strong foothold in the sushi industry through True World Foods. There's just like a number of things that the church is involved in that most people don't realize. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it is based on the backs of labor trafficking, by the way. So here so I am. As I, I heard, I, I can't remember if it was from you or from somebody else recently, that that basically all American sushi has their, has their fingerprints on it in some fashion. The I would say above 50%. I don't have exact statistics on it, but I think it's, (laughs) I think it's pretty safe to say if you're eating sushi in the United States, you're supporting a cult that again has, yeah. I mean, if you, if you imbibe right-wing media, you are likely, uh, taking media that sources from the Washington Times, which was started and is owned by the Unification Church, and which, again, allegedly uh, was built on the the backs of, of trafficked people, you know? So even if people were paid a salary, they were coerced into donating that salary back to the church. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that that still qualifies for labor trafficking. It does. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just like our, my, my big 50 bucks a week in the Sea Org uh, is, you know, yeah, no, I was trafficked. I was absolutely trafficked. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, uh, the only times, again, that I, I really saw uh, church members was on these holy days, which were these random days that were, you know, about the the true lineage of God and stuff and people and and um, during these workshops. So I was sent to my first church workshop at eight, and it was basically a recreation of the Boonville model, mm. except for the fact that you didn't need to coerce people into staying, you know, for the dinner and then the two days. It was for my age group uh, a one week workshop. I was put on a bus from Virginia to New York by myself, didn't know anybody. At eight years old? At eight years old, yep. Uh, You know, yeah, like who does that? Eight years old. Who the hell Um, puts an eight year old on a bus? I know, I know. It, Especially it was a, into know, the world was, of Satan. What the hell were they thinking? It, it wasn't like a Greyhound bus. I think it was like a bus, like a short bus that the church had chartered oh, or something okay, like this. Okay. But All still, right. still. Um, still, I didn't know anybody, you All know? Right. Um, and so the, the structure of these workshops, again, was very similar in that it was almost all day lecture. You started out the day... <laughs> by doing these exercises that are kind of like torture, basically. So we would do something called unity jumping jacks, where uh, there would be a count and everybody would have to be in unison. And if you think about having 50, 100, 200, eight-year-olds trying to do anything in unison, that's not going to happen. So they'd be like, all right, let's get to five. And you'd count to five in Korean. And if one person was out of sync, you'd do it again. Again, once you'd get to that number, then they'd increase it. And then sometimes they'd be like, all right, let's see if we can be unified enough for God and Heavenly Father and beat Satan. So we're going to skip number seven and number 22. 
and they'd have you out there for hours doing stuff like this. Um, and there would be punishments for people who couldn't keep up like the whole group. If, if you fucked up, your group could get punished for this. So again, this is like so similar to how POWs were treated in these prison camps, but the Moonies are doing it to eight-year-olds because, and it was, it was second generation doing this to younger kids too. So it was like 18 year olds who had been through even more intense workshops and programmings doing this to their younger brothers and sisters. And so you looked like you were going to ask a question about that. I was only going to say that that another way of phrasing this is this is compliance training. Absolutely. So later, later there would be this mantra introduced. This is my cat, Wesley, by the way. (laughs) Hello, Wesley. That that didn't meet her in a previous interview where she knocked over my water. Yes. Um, So later they would introduce a mantra that was absolute faith absolute love, absolute obedience. And so I remember at 14 doing unity jumping jacks to absolute faith, absolute love, absolute obedience. And it is exactly what you're talking about. It's compliance training for kids who couldn't comply. uh, There were instances where they would be put into like stress squat positions. So they'd be squatting like with their arms out, like there's photos of eight, nine-year-olds doing like these stress squats. And this would all be before breakfast. Um, you would then like go into a lecture where it would be hours and hours and hours of monotonous stuff that you'd heard all the time, divine principle lectures. If you fell asleep, you were hit. Um, or people would like grab you and roughly massage you. So it was teaching you that like your person could be violated. If you weren't paying attention all the time, if you weren't taking this in, um, you could be violated. And so uh, I remember being kind of freaked out again, because I'm eight years old. And so at that point, I think we had moved two or three years prior. So my context for like adults and how adults treat kids, for example, was public schools. It wasn't great because I wasn't allowed to have healthy relationships with like my teachers, for example. Um, I remember in second grade, my mom being like, you know, your teacher relies on you too much. You can't have this kind of relationship because she'd like encourage me to read books and stuff like that. So I was systematically cut off from people. But I remember even at eight years old being like, Something's wrong here. I don't know what it is. Didn't have the language, didn't have the context, but I had the counterpoint to be like, my teachers in school don't do this. Kids at school are sometimes bullies, but like, not like this. Um, There would be rumors at camp, like if you had the messiest cabin, you'd get hit with a stick. There were like all of these things that kids were telling me that like, here's how you can get punished and here's how you can get punished. So there was like arts and crafts and swimming, But there was also like, if you step out of line, you're going to get hit. So I remember one night um, being told like, okay, your group, your chore for the night is you're going to clean up the kitchen of the VIP cabin. And this was like adult leaders kitchens. So imagine taking a group of eight-year-olds in to clean up after a bunch of adults. And I'm sitting there, well, not sitting there, standing there in front of a sink on a step stool, scrubbing these dishes while this adult woman looks on and is talking about how like 
doing chores like this, it really helps you understand the heart of God, you know? And I'm sitting here going, huh? I do dishes at home. And I was the oldest of five kids at that point. So I had changed my fair share of dirty diapers. I was like, I don't know how this gets you closer to God. Then the woman's husband comes in and goes, you're doing a good job, kids. But if you don't hurry, I'm going to have to hit you. And I was like, what the actual what? You know, so here is the manifestation of what all these people are telling me that, you know, if you step out of line, you're going to get hit. And now there's this arbitrary standard of you're not even cleaning up my dishes fast enough and you're going to get hit. And um, my family was extremely violent. I got hit all the time. My parents, you know, beat me with hangers and belts and stuff like that. Oh, I was not, I was not aware that they're okay. Got that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Both of my parents, it wasn't like you did this bad thing and now I have to spank you. It was that like, they'd lose their shit and they would hit us. So by this point, I was used to being hit. And yet I turned to this guy, didn't know him you know, but this adult, and I'm like, you can't hit me. I'm so-and-so's daughter. And again, in my mind, my dad is the third most important man in the world. Right. And so I thought by saying that I was like going to protect myself. And he just laughed at me. Right. He was like, Oh, well, nice to meet you. So-and-so's daughter. Um, but that for me, like I tell that story because it's this like formative moment for me in the doubt of my experience as this blessed child, right? Where I'm like, something is really, really wrong here. I I didn't think or believe that the abuse that I experienced at home was bad or wrong. It was just what was. But when I saw it happening in that context, I was like, this isn't okay. So I remember coming home and telling my mom about that. And she was really upset, which she shouldn't have been technically, right? Like we were all this one communal family in probably in these communities, it would have been very normal for parents to punish other people's kids. My mom was like very up in arms about it. And she recognized that there was something wrong with the fact that eight-year-olds we're being subjected to this abuse from like a lecturer standpoint, from a physical standpoint, et cetera. So in the church, there's this concept of indemnity and it's essentially like you suffer to pay it forward. You know, you are um, developing this currency against Satan. Uh, you're either paying for your own sins or for the sins of your ancestors, or you're paying so that your uh, descendants don't have to suffer. Right. And my mom said to me, I don't know if we're paying indemnity or indemnity, which was this term that she started using. And so this sort of set this foundation for me of being like, again, something's wrong here. You know, this wasn't how it was supposed to be. Because my mother said, you know, we as the first generation were supposed to have set the foundation so that the second generation didn't get exposed to this. And yet here it is. And so... For me, that that really set this foundation at a young age of questioning what was structurally and and not taking it for granted that that this was how like it's just this is how it's ordained 
ordained. This is how it's supposed to be, that there's like fallibility in the system. And so it really, when we moved to Arizona, um, which was my mom trying to run away from my dad again, we moved back to Arizona so that she could um, work for my grandparents. Actually, my father got, he finished his degree and then the church had nothing they fired him from his church job. So he was working for the church throughout his, his um, college career. Very common for them to just discard people. So he got discarded, was unemployed and unemployable too, because for people who have basically had their whole career within a cult, like, how do you show that gap on a resume? <laughs> you know, um, or like, what is this group, this, this think tank that you work with a little bit of digging shows that it's associated with the Moonies, which nobody, nobody wanted to be associated in the outside world with the Moonies. Some people would actually lie about it. So my fam, there's this family of five kids. My father was extremely violent by this point. And my mother was too, but she decided that she was going to run away with us again. And, uh, so we ended up in Phoenix, which was a very small sort of backwater community. And it was the first time that I was seeing other church members, other second generation on a regular basis. And I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> because, um, again, I wasn't, I wasn't used to the weirdness of the Unification Church in that I like, I don't even know how to describe it other than I learned very slowly that I felt like church members were unreliable adults to the point where I felt like they were dangerous. And so when I got to Arizona, that, that felt like it was even more in my face to the point where like my sister and I, who she's 17 months younger than me, we would say to our mom, like, mom, first gender, like crazy, you know, and she would justify it by saying that, um, well, when true father came to the United States, it was really grandma and grandpa's generation, the greatest generation that had been prepared to receive father, but they rejected father. Therefore, like Jesus, who, you know, God had prepared the Jewish people to receive him, father had to go amongst the prostitutes and the taxpayers and the fishermen and that's really what we are so you know she was justifying sort of the I think the psychotic behavior of members who had been subjected to this culture this abusive culture for so long like you know you talk about double bind theory and that was really developed to explain like schizophrenia and PTSD so if, if you're if you're putting people into these catch-22s and these abusive situations for decades, of course you're going to have psychotic outcomes. Exactly. And so that's, I think that's what I was identifying as a kid, but again, I didn't have the language for it. If if I might also, just to, just to throw this into the mix too, is that from your point of view as a child, you were dead on accurate because... <laughs> This was a hostile environment to children oh, by design, mm -hmm. by definition, it was a hostile mm -hmm. environment because children apparently using this Boone technique or the spoon recruitment the Boonville model, yeah, yeah. Boonville model, right? Um, 
you are breaking them. The idea is to break them. This is not this is really not that far off from Michael and Debbie Pearls raise up a child in the evangelical homeschooling world where you you know you spare the rod, you you spoil the child. Spoil you, the child. Right? This this biblical sort of bullshit that gets passed down and used by abusers and predators like Moon, like the Pearls. These are abusive predator people. These are not good people. They are evil people. And mm-hmm. they and they utilize these techniques to break human beings. And so yeah. when you apply it to children, which is the situation you were in, I just wanted to point out you were 1000% justified and accurate in perceiving that you were in an environment that was designed to be hostile to you as a child. And unfortunately, um, also uh, an environment that creates a lot of cognitive dissonance for the kids because for everybody, but it's especially for kids, um, because they're going through this at developmental stages. Uh, and so again, no pre-cult identity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so right. one of the ways that they fuck with you is that when you have negative thoughts, when you have doubts, that's Satan invading. And so the only way to get back on center would be to uh, cut off those thoughts, right? Um, so cut off your feelings, cut off your intuition, and dive deeper into the teachings of Reverend Moon. So yep. you learn to brainwash yourself, and it becomes this this closed, again, bounded choice environment. Yep. Um, and so it was it was a, a huge double bind slash mind fuck with my mom because she had experienced things that I think that she would have definitely qualified as abuse. For example, this, this Japanese leader, she told me about who invited her to his office late at night and then started like, you know, stroking her hair and things like that. And she's like, what the actual fuck? Um, and she like chopped off her hair after that. And this is before I was born. Um, so she recognized like the fallibility of the leaders. So she would tell me all the time, trust your gut. But then when I, I would trust my gut and I'd be like, Hey mom, this seems crazy. She'd be like, no, no. <laughs> and so you're, you're completely, um, just terrorizing children that way yeah. and really teaching them that, uh, they are not able to connect to their feelings. They're not able to connect to their inter their inner compass. And so um, this is why it can be so hard, not only for second gen and multi-gen to leave, but then also to trust themselves on the outside. So studies have have shown that that is that self-trust is really, really hard for them um, because there's they're coming from this place of such stringent structure and rules and that their own mind is not to be trusted. Their own mind can be a tool of Satan and then thrown out into society where it's like, it's just you as an individual on your own, potentially with no education, no skills, et cetera. So exactly. I, uh, yeah. which, which has the desired effect, you know, uh, uh, effect that you will come crawling back. Or just never leave in the first place. Exactly. If you manage to get out, you know, yeah, exactly. But you must depend on and be Mm -hmm. compliant with the group. I mean, that's the entire design. And and, and the problem, I just got to say, is it's not like this shit works. It's, It's that you drive somebody so nuts and limit their choices so much that they comply with you because they just don't know what the hell else to do. But it's not like you're creating this whole army of 
you know, avid, loyal, intelligent followers. You are creating zombies doing this kind of thing over time. It's yeah. it's not none of this is a constructive, positive, you know, thing to, that that no. is going on in these groups. And I and I only stress this because I want to point out to the audience right now, you're hearing about an extreme example of of coercive control like, leveraged against children here. But think for a second about how the structures of our society and other groups and belief sets do similar things to this. And we all kind of justify it and roll with it and don't necessarily think through all the consequences of what we're doing, you know, and that's, that's, that's the, that I just got to point that out here. Cause there's a, there's an important, there's a bigger lesson here than, Oh my God, you know, this is, this is really bad for those Mooney kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, with um, like the breaking code silence movement, for example, that is something we institutionalize abuse of kids um, is it's like a, a perfect parallel to a lot of what we're talking about here. Um, and I know this is a point where you and I could go on a huge tangent and start talking about all the different ways that this manifests in the world. Um, so I will try to, to resist that pull. Um, because no, I like, I don't believe that all of society is a cult, for example. Somebody no, of course. At me the other day. Yeah. No, no, no. I know. I know. And I yeah. know that's not the point that you're going to make, but Dr. Yanya Lolich and um, Carla McLaren in their book, Escaping Utopia, which is about second gens leaving these coercive environments, they, they're like in their intro, they're like, why is this important? Because cultic behavior is human behavior. Coercive behavior exists out there. And so when we identify it in these extreme contexts, it does create that blueprint for us to be able to overlay it on these other contexts and be like, are we doing that thing over here too? So yeah, I mean, I do think that that's a really important thing to flag. Yeah, exactly. That's oh. all I, and that's all I wanted to do is just kind of raise <laughs> that flag and go, hey guys. Yeah. You know, yeah. teaching moment here. Cause, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, yeah. Cause it's just something to consider. This is the food for thought that my, mm -hmm. that I am trying to provide to people here is this, yeah. you know, is this, this is a, this is an awful tale of abuse that you are telling, but it has, um, oh, I just don't know what the word is. Anyway, parallels, parallels in it other has resonance yes. for many other contexts. Yeah. There we go. And just to, just like, I smiled when you said like, this is a tale of, of abuse, right? Of like extreme abuse. Um, many of us who've grown up in these contexts, you could grow up in a violent family. It doesn't have to be a cult, although families can be cults. Many of us normalize this, right? Um, but the first therapist that I ever went to see was right after Moon died in 2012. So I'm sort of skipping ahead to after I got out. But I'd tell her stuff and she wasn't a cult trained therapist. So she'd just sit there like <laughs> slack jawed, eyes popping. And she'd go, that's so abusive. And it didn't, I, I had no idea what she was talking about because I had so normalized it. Yep. Um, and so I think that it, again, for anybody that's been in a context like this for a really long time, well, I mean, okay, you're going to have to stop me if I go on a tangent for too long. <laughs> no, go but ahead. I think that like this is a really salient point for anybody that's been exposed to an environment like this for a really long time. Um, 
this this goes into totalist identity theory and and like social identity in general we so relate to the group the milieu the culture of what we've been in for so long that we don't recognize that we are being abused so trafficking victims for example exhibit this behavior too um and i just i think that it's a really important point for us to develop compassion around that um like you know again where it like intersects with uh, inter intimate partner violence too the people who are being victimized in these systems don't necessarily recognize at the time or even for a while afterwards that they're being victimized. So I'm still processing the fact that somebody else listens to my story. My, my now cult aware therapist, uh, she's read like my narrative. I, I wrote, um, actually it's, it's right here. I wrote my story for myself because, you know, narrative reclamation is such an important thing for a lot of survivors. She read it, um, which is wonderful and amazing and something that I wish all survivors could have. Um, and even still, she'll be like, yeah, you had a really extreme case. And I'm like, I don't see it because I know so many stories of people. So I'm not trying to, to diminish her perspective because she is a, a scholar and an expert in her field. But I'm still working through that normalization uh, and we're only at 12 in the timeline, you know, so it's, um, it's just something that I really want your listeners to, to take away. And that's why I'm sort of hammering home on it is that you can, you can look at a victim or a survivor as stupid. Like, why don't you see this? Why can't you get out of it? And it's because human nature whether it's like a self-protection thing or a nurture thing, like whatever happens. Uh, and again, there are so many theories that help explain it. We identify with our abuse and our abusers, or we normalize it. And you and I were talking last time about, you know, brainwashing as a socialization technique. Some of us were just socialized with abuse. And so that's in many, in, in many, many different contexts, even what we equate with love. So I, I think that that's a huge tragedy in these groups, in these sort of familial contexts, is that um, love, well, that, that control, that abuse can masquerade as love, can masquerade as community, can masquerade as belonging. And, and it really becomes this thing that separates us from a larger societal context it separates us from getting the help that we need and it, it really creates misunderstanding so there you go and the har and hardly then, a tangent very 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 good point thank you yeah so um just to sort of give an example of what for me uh being imbued in the the slightly more concentrated church context was like was um when we first moved to arizona my family lived in a, <laughs> my parents always lived beyond their means. So on both sides, grandparents were constantly giving my parents money, which I think they were probably turning over to the church. Um, but they were also living in these kind of like nice middle-class neighborhoods, whereas really what we could afford was probably, you know, government housing or something like that. Um, so we lived in an area, a development that had a pool. So my mother would organize all these pool parties for the second gen to come over after church. And the state leader at the time, who is also in government, 
So Moon wanted us to infiltrate the government and we did, and we got funding to teach you all about abstinence education and stuff like that. Um, so this guy's now a judge on, I think like the Supreme court in Arizona, but at the time he was a state rep and he was a state leader in the church. I, I'd like he to, just, I'd like to, if I might, just for just a second, I'm going to just take a highlighter <laughs> and I'm just going to go over very, very over we'll and come over back again to the, what yeah, you just yeah. said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a, a, I'm going to come back to it. Don't worry. Yeah. A Supreme Court judge in Arizona is a Mooney. All the things we've covered, he believes. Yeah, well, it's the same thing with like Scientology getting on on boards and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the same. It's the same desire for power and control. Right. And and. Right. The conservative right has been doing this for a long time, and the Unification Church has been a big part of funding and um, propagating a lot of the beliefs of the, the the right. And and I highly recommend for anybody that's interested. So <laughs> there's two books I always recommend, which is Moonwebs by Josh Fried, which gives you the sense of that that conversion experience of the abuse that people suffered. The second book is Bad Moon Rising by John Gornfeld. And it is, it has a picture of Reverend Moon crowned in a U.S. Senate building. There was a coronation ceremony where U.S. senators put a fucking crown on Reverend Moon and crowned him like the king of the universe or king of peace or something, because that man has been donating money to right-wing conservatives since the 80s, I think. So... Let me please also just to just to show how far these tentacles and I'm going to call them tentacles go here, right? Just to give this analogy, this is off the Wikipedia page. This is common knowledge. You don't have to dig deep for this. This is stuff that the the Unification Church edits all the time. So, and, and so and like it's if, still, it's, if it's there for a couple of days, they've approved it. it well, well, it's right here, right? It says United States versus Sun Myung Moon. Uh, this is in 1982. He was convicted yeah. in the mm -hmm. U.S. of filing false federal income tax returns and conspiracy. He uh, was upheld on appeal, and he went to jail for six, an 18-month sentence and a $15,000 fine. He served 13 months of the sentence um, before being released on good behavior. The case was the center of national freedom of religion and free speech debates. Here's how stupid people get about this. is an abusive, high-control, authoritarian group gets to be lumped in on free speech debates and freedom of religion. Okay, this is how nuts we are in the United States on this stuff. Mm -hmm. this, the case was the center of all this attention. Okay, this is what I wanted to read. Professor Lawrence H. Tribe of the Harvard University Law School argued that the trial by jury had doomed Moon to conviction based on religious prejudice. The American Baptist Churches in the USA, the National Council of Churches, the National Black Catholic Clergy Caucus, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference all filed briefs in support of Moon. Many notable clergy, including Jerry Falwell and Joseph Lowry, signed petitions protesting the government's case and spoke out in defense of Moon. If you're waiting for the institutions in this country, the religious institutions or the government institutions to take action against these groups and protect you, you will be waiting forever. It does, doesn't work like that. It's going to take all of us 
demanding action by these people who supposedly represent us to get action taken because they have proven over and over again historically that they will be bought, corrupted, etc. Or just railed in on the stupid train of, well, this is all just under the banner of religious freedom. So what's the problem? Mm-hmm. And, and it's, a, it's a lack of ability to differentiate and understand context. And that's just the fact of the world we live in right now. And I just needed to point that out because it really gets my goat when I hear the FBI should be doing something, the police should be doing something. Why don't these other religious groups do something? No, they're not just not doing something. They're actually helping. <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah. That's how bad it is, right? That's how backwards we have this whole cult view in mm-hmm. this country from our institutions because they're afraid yeah. that if the cults go down, they're next. It's weird, it's wrong, but in the religious context, I see that happening, as well as legitimate arguments from a misplaced sense of religion, freedom of religion. Yeah, I I totally get where that's a slippery slope. And um, so Dr. Hassan um, maintains a list of front groups uh, of the Unification Church, and I believe last I counted, it was seventy-one pages. So pages, Damn. seventy-one pages, not seventy-one groups, seventy-one fucking pages. Right. Um, and so these groups are used uh, not only for money laundering, but uh, influence peddling as well. Right. And so um, it's it's not necessarily that like these mainstream religious groups, for example, are. Uh, on the cult bandwagon, but they may have been influenced by one of these front groups. Um, Like Barbara Bush was an attendee and a speaker at the Women's Federation for World Peace events, which is a front group of the Unification Church, you know, and um, the Bushes took a lot of money to speak at various moon organization things. Um, Donald Trump recently spoke, I think even Michael Pence recently spoke at um, some sort of like Universal Peace Federation event, which is a Mooney event. So it's like, whether these people know about the connection or not, I, it's, you know, that could be debatable, but um, there's- I, I, I suppose ignorance could be a defense as well. And yet there's the practical problem. They yeah, don't even well, bother to find out, right? The, and, and what I'm trying to say is that I believe that the Unification Church, for example, has helped to engineer the practical problem um, by creating what are essentially like shell corporations so that it's harder to track down the source of the money, the source of the the influence, et cetera. And that's why I really appreciate the investigative reporting by John Gorenfeld, for example, in Bad Moon Rising. And, you know, it's like he's looking at it from a very specific slice. And it's like that man could have written a compendium on the issue of how far Unification Church influence goes in so many contexts, because there's the sushi industry, they, they're they closing the Kirov Ballet because of embezzlement, but you know, the Kirov Ballet is like a big deal. Most people don't know that it was started and funded by the Moonies. So there's, there's just a lot there. Um, wow. Yeah, so wow. going all the way back to Arizona, it's like no 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 it's it's a salient point one guy one guy in the arizona state rep uh, arizona state assembly or or whatever like that doesn't sound like a big deal right 
but it's a microcosm of the larger issue that we're yeah. talking about. So I liked theater as a kid. I did my first play at eight and my mom told me if I wanted to become an actress, that meant that I had to become the most famous actress in the world to restore the entertainment world for true parents and for the church. And that's the mentality yeah. that you infiltrate everything to get it under moon and his, you know, theocracy under himself. Yep. So, and yes, there are parallels in Scientology and every other cultic group yeah, too. Yeah. Scientology has an issue called what we expect of a Scientologist, 1960. L. Ron Hubbard made it clear. You get out there. You don't all have to be auditors. We want judges. We want teachers. We want everything. Businessmen. We want people everywhere at all levels of society applying Scientology to improve conditions and make the world mm -hmm. a better place, right? So. Right. And so this is how we go from people living in vans and fundraising and being labor trafficked to seminaries being created so that we could have scholars to defend unification theology and things like that. It's this, it's the same playbook. We always talk about this, yep. the same fucking playbook. <laughs> um, and so what's interesting, and I, again, I don't know if this was every every second gen's experience in the unification church you know again i i always say i understand that our experiences are non-homogenous my experience was i show up in arizona it's the first time that i've been in a mooney community since i was like four and this state leader is looking down on the fact that my mom has organized a barbecue and a pool party and he's like you know this is all fine and good, but like, what is this doing for these kids' spiritual education? And he had formed, he had already formed this second gen youth group, which basically consisted of his children who were 12 to nine. And so my sister and I were inducted into this youth group and he was going to plan the activities from then on. And our first activity was in the Arizona summer heat being taken in his car to random neighborhoods where he was running for office, dropped off with a bunch of signs and petitions and left for hours on end to go knock on doors and say, you know, will you sign this petition? Can we put a campaign thing in your yard? His like, solution was to labor traffic you. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I'm so glad you got it right away. I started getting labor trafficked at 12 years old. Um, you believe this shit? You absolutely. Can you believe this shit? I, can you believe people get away with this shit? Yeah, it's it, just, it's just obscene. I, I just, I'm driven to obscenity with this. It's, it pisses me off so much. It's, it's labor trafficking light for the Moonies. But this guy had spent ten years as an, a mobile fundraising team captain, doing this to his team. So he would pick up a bunch of people with product and drive them around to various neighborhoods or industrial centers and let them out on runs. And people died, people got raped, they were injured. And he decided this is a great way to parent his children. And so I've come from Virginia, where it's lush and humid, to Arizona, where it's 110 degrees, dry heat, and I get heat stroke the first day that I do this. Of I'm course. like nauseous. I, I don't think that we had sufficient water for what we were doing. So you have a, an incredibly dangerous situation with children, again, being put into all kinds of neighborhoods, no way of communicating. 
my sister and I would go off on one team and then his two children would go off on another team. No way to communicate with him or each other. And I remember his kids coming around the corner and I'm sitting with my head in my hands, trying not to vomit because I'm, I have heat stroke. And they're like, well, did you finish this side of the street? And my sister goes, no, Jen sick. And they're like, stop disuniting. Why are you always bringing in negativity? You are just caning out. So this is language that is taught to shame you. Mm -hmm. If you are physically incapable of doing something, it's, it's not because the environment is such that it's inhospitable for a 12 year old to be on their feet all day. It's because there's something wrong with you. And so there's no compassion. There's no, let's knock on a door and get you some water. Let's get you into the shade. It is, there is something wrong with you. And I just remember just like hating myself. So I had been indoctrinated enough within my familial context and with these regular workshops that these indoctrination camps essentially that I was sent to over the years that um, it totally worked on me. You know, I don't remember if I got up or not, but I remember hating myself because I wasn't able to comply. And I journaled at the time. And so like I journaled in anger, but then also self-hatred too, you know? So it's like the the healthy part of my brain was able to recognize something's wrong here. But then the indoctrinated part of my brain was like, maybe what's wrong is you. And that, that's the tragedy to me. And so there were a number of other similar situations um, for the 4th of July. We had to go out and sell light ropes. So we were sent out in the dark in these public parks with money on us this time, selling product with no immediate adult supervision. Again, I'm 12 years old. I had an adult man ask me out. And it was like, he was very confrontational about it to the point where my my sister's like, she said, no, leave her alone. And she like grabs me to like get us away. But the other girl that was with us, the daughter of the state leader was looking at me the whole time. Like you whore, what, what's, what did you do to attract? that man. So this is purity culture that the Unification Church co-opted from evangelicalism, that the woman is responsible for the man's desires. And so the fact that an adult man asked me out in front of all of his friends, and then I'm like, no. And he goes, well, why not? And I was like, because I don't even know you. And he goes, well, how old are you? And I'm like, 12. And he goes, damn it, I knew it. Well, will you go out with me anyway? And this is when my sister steps in and is like, no means no, and grabs me and runs away. Um, The fact that this other girl used that shaming technique on me, that was really not the first time because my mother was really good at this and that, that church workshops too had already been taught that like my body was harmful and sinful and, you know, the, the, the fall of man was caused by a woman. So all of this is already indoctrinated. Um, but it was really one of my first experiences of that purity culture of the woman being the stumbling block. And frankly, like rape culture too, where as an underage ch- child, you are responsible for an adult man's reaction to you. Right. Um, it's, it's horrible. 
But again, this is like a societal thing that I think many of us can recognize too, where when a woman is violated, the first question is, what were you doing? What were you wearing? Were you drunk? You know, and so it was just, this is sort of an extreme lens of it turned on a 12 year old. So <laughs> these were sort of my foundational experiences of being in a Mooney context. Now, again, I'm going to public schools. So around 14, I'm living this double life of having a boyfriend, but then also going to church and dealing with these kids who have these very strict standards. And I remember one time this girl came to church who had been outcast. She was probably about 14 too. She had had sex, which is called falling, the worst sin that you can commit because as second generation, we were the first generation born of God's lineage. So having fallen, she was outside of the realm of God's protection. I remember we weren't allowed to talk to her. We weren't even really allowed to look at her. She was just like a complete outcast. And what that does is it reinforces the fear again of, uh, I mean, this is post-separation abuse, right? But just done to a child. So you are, uh, you're abused when you leave the milieu. Right. Um, and we Not were taught that, all the shame as well. Oh, Guilt, absolutely. You know, now we were taught too, that if you leave the church, um, you will literally be killed not necessarily by other Moonies, but Satan will somehow find a way to kill you. So when I left, I thought I was going to get struck by lightning or something. Um, my mom had a spiritual child. So somebody she had recruited when I was like 10 and he left uh, not long after his mother was able to get him out. And then he died. He drowned in an accident. And my mother used that as this is what happens. Yeah. See, there it is. See what happens. Yeah. yeah. So you have, you know, you're going to die. This poor girl is an outcast. And here I have this boyfriend. And in my day-to-day -day life, like it's very easy to develop a double life if you're not in it all the time. Um, and I had to, because I wasn't allowed to say at school, this is who I am. And so I, I developed a persona for school and I developed the persona to keep me safe in the cult. And had a really nice boyfriend and he was super cute. And we'd like hold hands and stuff. And I just remember thinking like, what's the big deal? Not allowed to date in the church. It's a super big sin, but it's again, starting to develop this sense of doubt. And then I'm hating myself for having the doubt. Right. And I remember I, uh, I snuck out to go to a dance with him and I don't even, I don't even think we kissed. We just like slow danced you know, like awkward freshmen do. And I came home and I couldn't sleep that night because I was so nauseous with guilt. I was sobbing. The next morning I confessed to my mother that this is what's happening. <laughs> and so that summer, she sent me to an another uh, indoctrination camp. It was leadership training where uh, we were basically training to be assistant counselors for another indoctrination camp. And they, they did like unity jumping jacks. They did all kinds of these sort of like conformity exercises, but they'd wake us up at three in the morning to do them. So mm -hmm. they would come in, we'd be sleeping on the floor and they would use lifeguards whistles to wake us up and then start screaming at us to go out into the cold 
because it gets cold at night in California and Arizona and all these places. And they'd make us do these jumping jacks and things like that uh, in the middle of the night. Um, there would be like a specific whistle pattern that we'd have to listen to or listen for. And whenever we heard it, we had to drop whatever we were doing and do push-ups. So like even... <laughs> Even once we were counselors, they did that to us to show the younger campers what absolute faith, absolute love, and absolute obedience looks like. I sprained my ankle during uh, this camp, and I still had to do all of this. So I was doing like one-footed push-ups. Like at lunch, you'd hear the whistle pattern, and then you'd have to jump up and do these jumping jacks, or not jumping jacks, but these push-ups. And so it was like taking the worst part of like thought reform and like basic training and putting it all together. And they called this hell training. So. And that's exactly what it is. It's yeah. training that yeah. belongs in hell. Well, so this was the beginning of Moon's leadership, especially second generation leadership. So his children got married to only Koreans, by the way, only Koreans were pure enough to marry his Korean tr true children. But um, so these would be people that would become part of the leadership. And they realized at some point that none of us had had that Boonville conversion style experience. So these trainings began to become more and more abusive and more coercive to create that break, right. that conversion. Um, and so it, it gets worse down the line. Um, but I, again, I remember like vacillating between like, this is so fun. This is so great. We're learning leadership qualities. Like, I don't know what leadership qualities you're actually learning as you're like woken up at three in the morning. Uh, so I would vacillate mentally between that and like, what the fuck is going on here? But I went directly from that to this thing called Pure Love Alliance, so this is another front group of the Unification Church. It was, I don't know if it still exists, but it was a 501c3. So it, it was a, a nonprofit organization that called itself non-sectarian. Um, and so they, they claimed they had no association with the Unification Church. They're a completely separate organization, despite the fact that all of the board was Unification Church leaders. And the point of this was to, I think, mimic the groundswell of uh, the, the youth organizations and grassroots kind of um, activity that was going on in the evangelical movement at the time to promote conservative values. So the Unification Church kind of jumped on this, this bandwagon and developed an abstinence-only curriculum and force fed it to us this summer and said, here's your handbook, write speeches on this handbook. Now you're gonna get brought all over the country. You're gonna do marches and rallies and you're gonna stand on trash cans and you're gonna give these speeches that are basically like Mad Libs from the core curriculum. Um, and what this did was it attracted mayors and it attracted community leaders who would come and give these speeches in support of what we were doing because we were doing abstinence education isn't this great look at all of these wholesome young people but really it was indoctrination for us because 
we weren't getting fed appropriately. We were sleeping on YMCA floors or church pews and things like that. But we were creating this face for this organization that then got government funding to put the core curriculum into schools, especially I think it was like 60 schools in Chicago. And I think there were schools in Florida. So this was just one more way that the Unification Church was infiltrating the United States. And guys, your tax dollars went to this. You know, just to just to um, build on this for a second, since people might think this is some unique, special, different thing that they've never heard of. And oh my God, that's crazy. The Transcendental Meditation Institute, the, 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 the TM movement. Um, it's in schools. It's recently been pulled out, I think. Yeah, succeeded at mm-hmm. getting into Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think New York and San Francisco. And before it was revealed that it was TM and that this was that this was um, that this was a religious ceremony disguised as a non-religious ceremony, mm-hmm. um, and that there was deception from the very first, you know, from the very beginning of this thing, because that's what TM is. It's a deceptive, destructive cult that that um, that is trying to ride this meditation wave and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and in a way helped create it in the first place. So uh, Scientology has an entire institute uh, of, 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 a, of training facility outside of St. Louis that is specifically designed to train teachers, to bring teachers in from schools all over the world and train them in L. Ron Hubbard's uh, supposed study techniques and, and export that under the Hubbard system to get Hubbard's name out there and and pave the way for these kids to join Scientology. This is the, in other words, none of this is unique or special to any one of these groups. Every one of them are trying to infiltrate and get their hands and their, again, just going to say tentacles around the minds of your kids. They're not screwing around. This is not like, this is not like a, a joke. These, these are very serious people who very much believe in what they're doing and will mm-hmm. go to any lengths necessary, as we've as we've been talking about here, and as you lived and as I lived, doing this. You know, these, the, you were serious. I was serious. I mean, I was a committed person. I, I really meant what I what I thought was the real thing. Doing this stuff, right? So, mm-hmm. so these are not people who are you know sitting in back rooms. <laughs> we know what we're doing, and and we're gonna get all these guys. These, it's worse than that because these are people who actually believe. This bullshit is going to help these kids by abusing them and turning them into, you know, these little these little uh, compliance machines. So, I, you know, we really need to kind of wake up a little bit to the fact that this is a reality around us all the time, guys. I hate to get all preachy, but it just this kind of stuff really gets by gets me going, you know. I, I sometimes wonder at like the very top of the pyramid, are they? do they really believe this or are they just like so comfortable with the power and money that they've accrued that they're just like, <laughs> you know, because at, at the very top, always that is true. Yes, at the very yes. top moon Miscavige, you know, these uh, crash, these guys, they know exactly what they're doing. Um, you get a Marshall Applewhite every now and again. You get some guy who's willing to off himself for it and his whole clan, right? You get, yeah. you do get the crazy here too, but yeah. don't confuse them crazy Marshall Applewhites for the Miscavige's and the Moons. These are canny, crafty people, and mm-hmm. they and and they utilize these techniques on purpose. So, 
you know, the, 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 the scary thing about this stuff is it's, is it's like the mafia, except if everybody in the mafia thought they were saving the world, not, not engaged in a criminal enterprise. It's yeah. I, I always go back and forth with moon, uh, specifically like, I believe that he was a narcissist. I, I believe that he probably had the whole dark triad thing. Did he believe his own press releases? I don't know. You know, um, maybe. I don't know. Uh, Didn't stop him from flying around on a $50 million jet. <laughs> or having mean, multiple mansions all over this country just in and of itself. And, and exactly. yeah, I mean, literally living on the backs of slave labor. Well, well um, that's but, the, exactly. Do you, the, the more important question with somebody like a moon or a Miscavige, really, when it comes down to it is, did he know that you as a 12 year old were sleeping on or was sleeping on church pews? You know, to spread his abstinence, faith only thing to forward his goals. Of course he did. Of course he did. Yeah. I right? think that he thought that that was great. I was learning, you know, the way that that would have been spun was that I was learning about the heart of true father because true father suffered, you know, in order to find this truth of the divine principle, he battles Satan every day. And so I am. Not only am I learning about the heart of true father, but I'm becoming closer to God, you know, and, and so there's always justification because otherwise, how could my parents have allowed for that to happen too? Right. Because they, I was going to say drank the Kool-Aid and then I'm like, I should not say that. That's such a terrible thing to say, but they, they really believed they were true believers, you know? That's right. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Just picking I it think, back up on your narrative here. <laughs> Sorry, interjecting into this. I, I knew we were going to do this. And it's yeah. so tempting to just continue down the, the 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 tangents. But again, like I think that using the story to illustrate these points is super helpful. That's how we learn is through stories. So it's better than you and me being like, I read this paper by Brown Mays Chupino. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, I uh, I came home from this, it was like over a month of being away from my parents. I don't think I ever called my parents once. I, I never had access to a phone anytime I went to any of these indoctrination activities. If I was homesick, that was a problem. So if I was like eight years old and homesick at, you know, Camp Sunrise or something, which is what one of these indoctrination camps was called, it was simply my weakness. You know, I was disuniting with True Father or something. And, and so... Um, Access to my family was not a thing during this period, but I came home totally indoctrinated and told my mother, if I stay at this high school, I'm going to fall because I just believed that. So my mother completely uprooted us. Uh, and <laughs> like one thing that I didn't talk about is how often we were uprooted. I think that by the time I graduated, I think I mentioned this in another talk, I'd gone to like 12 different schools and I'd been homeschooled multiple times, which was just me alone in a room with encyclopedias. So my parents uprooting us was not uncommon. They moved us across the city uh, to a Mormon community where my mom thought I would be safer. But instead I was just ostracized because um, every time I'd meet somebody new, they'd be, are you LDS? And at first I didn't know what they were talking about. And then when I did, I said no, and then they'd never speak to me again. So it was this incredibly isolating experience. And we moved into this house where our neighbors came over to introduce themselves to us. 
And as soon as they found out that we weren't Mormon, they were not very friendly. And they were like, so did the realtor tell you what happened here? And my mom was like, but what do you mean what happened? And they're like, oh, the realtor didn't tell you that the uh, former occupant killed himself here. And my mom's like, what? And they go, yeah, that's the smell that you're smelling. Because I remember when we walked into this house the first time, we were like, what is that? It was this like sickly, sweet kind of smell. And my there was and I, still a smell in the house was, and they sold. Oh, wow. They didn't, they didn't sell it. We never owned a home. We rented. Well, still, um, I mean, yeah. yes, no, there's, um, there's no law saying that a, uh, a homeowner has to, to reveal that kind of information to a renter, at least in, in Arizona. So that information was not disclosed to us and we couldn't break the lease. Um, and I remember my sister and I had spent a lot of time trying to clean the house, find and find the source of the smell. And we never, we never did until, until this, you know, the neighbors bring over their cookies and are like, by the way. Um, so yeah, they were like, yeah, he, he shot himself. Um, nobody found him for three weeks until his ex-girlfriend came looking for him. And that's when they found the body. Um, that explains the blood stains on the wallpaper, and we found blood stains like behind the uh, behind the fridge and leading into the the laundry room. <sighs> yeah, yeah, and then Jesus. and then they're like, so did the did the landlord tell you about the scorpions? <laughs> and we're like, wait, what? This is it gets worse. Wow, this is really rolling out the welcome wagon for you, huh? Oh yeah, oh yeah, this. I know there are very nice Mormons out there. And that was my, my introduction to the Mormon community was like, oh, you're not one of us. Well, let's just torture you a little bit, which unfortunately fed into the way the us and them that the church kind of facilitated too, of like, because of who you are, you are the chosen people. Uh, Satan is going to find all kinds of ways to try to attack you. So, um, yeah so they go yeah this this whole neighborhood was built on top of a scorpion colony um here's a business card for our exterminator it's very expensive and so um in arizona there's something called bark scorpions and they're the poisonous kind they're the color of my cat's cat tree over here which was the color of our carpets so for yeah so for about a year um my dad got stung in bed. My sister got stung in bed. Like you'd have to check your bedding. Um, my three little brothers would always leave damp towels on the floor of the bathroom. And that's where they would go is like dark, warm, damp places. So it was this kind of nightmare. Um, as my family was like really unraveling. So we sort of go back to my mother had been trying to get away from my father, who was incredibly abusive for a long time. My mother was also incredibly abusive. And to cite Markowitz and Halpern's 1984 paper, um, you know, parents in these cultic situations learn narcissistic models of parenting because they learn from the narcissism of the cult leader. And so, you know, I've read up on BPD. I've read up on narcissism and like, what is it like to be the child of someone with borderline personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder. And I can't distinguish the difference between having a cult parent and having a parent with one of these disorders. 
my therapist has posited that both of my parents were on one or both of these spectrums. And again, I'm like, but that just sounds like the cult. So it's very hard to distinguish. So these are some of the ingredients in my family life in this crucible of a community where we're being ostracized in a house where um, somebody has died and it stinks. And the Moonies believe very, very strongly in the spirit world. So I don't know if this correlates to Scientology and the Thetans and stuff, but, you know, we wouldn't have said like the house was haunted by a ghost, but certainly we would have said like, there's an evil spirit world here. There's a, a low level of spirit world, which attracts evil spirits. So, you know, we were having nightmares all the time. Um, my, my father, I think lost his job again. Um, there was just all kinds of things, scorpions. So people were fighting a lot and it was just a tinderbox. Okay, good. So what I'd like to do, I'm just going to totally just cut right into this narrative right now and yeah. my audience is about to hate me but it's all good guys because here's the deal we're two hours into this and we've covered a lot of territory and this is clearly you know got we've got a lot more to cover and rather than try to do you know this all in one go i wasn't sure how this was going to go and i'm and i'm and like other interviews i've done multi-part episodes of people's stories is nothing unusual on this channel we want, we've got a lot to cover here. And um, this point that we're leaving at right now, where she has moved to Arizona and, and introduced into this new neighborhood, is, is, a, is a key turning point in the narrative. And without giving you guys too many cliffhangers here or anything, I'm just going to say that uh, shit gets really real really fast. <laughs> and we're going to pick right back up on that. When we go into our next episode, so um, our next part on this and, and see about finishing this thing up. So, but for time purposes and interest purposes and that sort of thing, I think we should um, call it a done for this episode. Uh, and for you, my voice too. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Give you a little break. Mm -hmm. So thank you uh, very much, Jen, for sharing and sure. being really as as starkly honest and open as you have been about your experiences so far. This has been a real revelation. Yeah, for you, you know, you and I have talked about this. We desensitize ourselves to our stories from talking about it so much, and we're desensitized by the culture that we grow up in. Um, but one of the beauties of the education that we've both been receiving is that it helps us contextualize a lot of what we've been through and it helps us understand it. So I'm incredibly grateful to be able to do that and use my story as a teaching tool in that regard. Awesome. Awesome. Well, and on that same note, of course, you know, both our program, what I'm trying to do with my channel here is all about the education component that that is so important to the recovery mm -hmm. of 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 an abusive situation. You got to understand if you want to get over it, get past the trauma of it, figure it all out. You, you, you got to understand the anatomy of what happened to you. And that's what that's what mm -hmm. we're trying to break down here. So. So, uh, everybody out there, thank you very much for uh, your viewership and your support and for watching the show. And I hope that we are uh, giving you some education, some enlightenment, some uh, maybe some entertainment as well in the middle of all of this, but mostly education. <laughs> so, so, again, Jen, thank you for helping me with this. Thank you for having me.
Absolutely. Okay, guys, uh, if this is a channel that you are enjoying and a show you want to support, uh, go ahead and sign up on Patreon. Link is below in the comment section, or not comment section, but description section of this video. Uh, and or you can always support the channel through um, PayPal. And I just recently set up a Venmo, and I think I need to figure out the addressing on that or whatever. I'll throw that out there too if anybody ever wants to use that as a medium to support the channel or show me some love as well. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.